0: all right hello everyone uh my name's ed um, and i'm here today to talk about uh something that happened in 2009 which is a struggle around a wind turbine factory and um that was at the time it was uh britain's only wind turbine factory um and it was, uh, well, it was Britain's only wind turbine blade factory. There was a wind turbine kind of hub factory up in Scotland. Um, <clears throat> but the Vestas plant on the Isle of Wight was the only factory producing uh, onshore wind turbine blades in the UK. And it employed about 600 people spread out over two sites Uh, on the Isle of Wight, one in East Cowes, the other, the larger one, in an industrial estate just outside of Newport. Has anyone here spent any time on the Isle of Wight? I mean, fair enough. It's not really been as big a tourist place since the 50s, but, you know, it was quite nice. Uh, Some of the pubs we went to over the course of the campaign were really very nice. It's a nice camping spot. I'll get into all that um so this was in 2009 and it came at the end of um a it came at the end of a sort of a cycle of struggles in the um environmental movement that i think were dominated by climate camp so when i say climate camp do people know what i'm talking about people familiar with uh what Climate Camp was? No. Yes, no, maybe. Um, so, Climate Camp was an annual uh, protest camp which was set up uh, after, I think, the G8 came to Glen Gleneagles. Um, so, there was a meeting of the G8 up in Scotland. There was a big protest camp there and loads of protest um, went on around it and out of that Kind of very much anarchist influenced, direct action focused protest movement came the idea for an annual climate camp. And there was, you know, there was a broader environmental direct action movement surrounding the climate camps. And you still see echoes of that in terms of what's going on in the UK today. So, one important element of what was happening was an organization called Plain Stupid. Uh, and that was an organization that would do very dramatic direct action stuff in order to raise awareness around the problems with the aviation industry. These guys would uh, go and lock themselves onto runways and get arrested uh, on runways um, trying to stop flights, and they create a big... Um, a big sensation, a big political sensation, and you can see echoes of that approach with the uh, very courageous anti-deportation activists who recently got nicked and threatened with a very long jail sentence for stopping a deportation charter flight uh, just a couple of years ago. So plain stupid were one big thing, but Climate Camp was the kind of the annual big focal point of the direct action environmental movement in the UK and people would descend upon uh, some rural corner of England. Every summer everyone would camp, there would be compost toilets, which were really grim, um, and there would be big, um, you know, big discussions going on. So uh, there would be meetings, workshops discussing all sorts of elements of politics but the big set piece thing is that every year there was a major piece of direct action aimed at shutting down a nearby carbon intensive piece of infrastructure. So the camp would always take place near an airport or near a coal-fired power station or near something you know something very polluting with a big chimney on it and people would go and they would try and shut the thing down um related to that in i think 2008 or 9 there was a very very dramatic piece of direct action where um some climate activists young climate activists mates some of the mates of mine uh from uni all went and took over a coal train uh, that was taking coal into a coal fired power station in the north of England. And um, they shut that facility down for a number of hours, made a big splash, all got nicked, of course, um, you know, much great heroics. And that, I, 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 I say these things to kind of give a bit of a flavor of what the environmental movement was like through this cycle of struggles leading up to and culminating, I think, in 2009 with the cop meeting in copenhagen um, and so you know it, it was a movement that was characterized by small groups of people displaying great personal heroism uh, it was characterized by dramatic pieces of direct action directed at bits of uh polluting infrastructure um, <laughs> You know, in many respects, it, it, it was a very radical movement. Now, uh, Workers' Liberty and a group of comrades who kind of agreed with some of the basic ideas of, of Marxism um, got involved, and we kind of made an intervention into this movement. And, and what we were intervening to say was, look there's a problem here if basically the whole thing that you're doing is you're turning up to someone's workplace and saying hi guys your workplace shouldn't exist so you think about um out near leeds there's the drax coal-fired power station which is converting to burn biomass fuel very bad um and the intervention of climate activists in uh, and around drax back then and To an extent to this day is to turn up and say to everyone who works in the plant lives in selby is this really important big workplace that your entire community depends upon well we've turned up to say that the government should shut it down yeah yeah sorry about that and we said look we said um that's not a constructive way of going about it, and also you're not. Um, it's, it's not just that that's bad because you know you're kind of wishing destitution upon a group of people. It, it, it's that it's strategically bad. It's that you're cutting yourself off from what could be a really important um, and actually a key, the key source of support. Um, the the we think that the key force that can fight climate change is the workers movement and so we would go to climate camps and say look in order to win this movement needs to break out of the patterns and forms it's got itself into where only small groups of very heroic people uh and in particular people who've got the time and the income and the background where they can take a long period off work and where if you get nicked it's a bit of a laugh um our movement has got to break out of that and it's got to break into uh, a way of being active that involves the working class and involves um the working class in a way that allows them to exercise their power which is strongest in the workplace, and, and and that was the kind of thing that we were saying. And then the financial crash happened, and um, the climate camp in 2009, which turned out to be, I think, the last climate camp, was held uh, on Blackheath uh, in southeast London, overlooking the city of London, overlooking you know all these uh, iconic bank towers down in greenwich and canary wharf and that was very eloquent because previously climate camp had been concentrated in on um you know um coal-fired power stations and stuff like that and here they were they were saying you know what's a really big driver uh a central really important driver of climate change it's uh capitalism and so you know here we are we're we're here where capitalism kind of happens and uh we're going to try and shut that down by doing loads of naughty stuff outside banks and that was eloquent as well um it was eloquent you know in a way because they're making a point about the the way that our society makes decisions about the economy about work about infrastructure is through finance that's undemocratic it's not rational it's sick but the other thing that was eloquent was it kind of showed up the limits of um the direct action model that environmentalism was going through at that time you couldn't um you know you 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 want to apply the spectacular direct action model to capitalism to this big social system um, and you know it, it turns out that it's not very effective way of fighting capitalism to turn up outside banks and pour a load of paint on them you know th- this does not in fact interrupt the workings of uh of capitalism uh because capitalism isn't something that lives in a bank in the way that A great big pile of coal lives in a coal-fired power station. Capitalism is a relationship. It's a relationship of domination, a relationship of exploitation, a relationship of um, undemocracy, of a lack of democracy. And our view is that in order to disrupt that relationship, um, you've got to build up working-class agency, and you've got to build a working class movement that can blow that relationship apart and we think that the most important place that that happens but not the only place is is at work is in the workplace um and i've spent quite a long time kind of setting the scene because i think it's interesting to put it in context of to to set the context for what happened on the Isle of Wight in 2009, and maybe to think a little bit about how that movement in the run-up to 2009 with the climate camps compares to what's going on now, how things are different. Um, Because it's important to have that kind of uh, historical perspective, recent historical perspective, when we're talking about how we're organising climate change struggle today. So... um, the other thing that happened in 2009, apart from the Blackheath climate camp, was um, the Vestas wind turbine factory on the Isle of Wight, which I mentioned at the start, announced to its 600 staff that they were shutting the plant down. Over the months from April to July, um, August, the production at the plant would cease and then the plant would be cleared out and all the stuff would be mothballed. The reason they said that this was going to happen was because uh, there wasn't enough um, uh, there wasn't enough effective demand for putting up wind turbines um, in the UK. And you know they say, oh, there's too many nimby's, there's too many people who won't allow us to put up um, uh, wind turbines around the UK, um, and that's Um, that that's the government's fault and and therefore we're shutting down and a small team of half a dozen activists in and around uh, workers liberty said well we should probably try and do something about that we went down to the island Um, I was a part of this team and we started camping not far from the Newport plant and what we did over a number of days, we'd go down to the factory at shift change. Uh, we actually posed as architecture students. We were all students. we just graduated when we went and did this. Um, we posed as architecture students to get into the plant. Uh, we said that we were architecture students who'd come down. We were interested in the roof of the factory because we'd read somewhere that it's an award-winning roof, which is true. It, it was an award-winning roof. Um, and we um found out when the shift changes were and we came back at shift change we hung around outside the factory and just talked to workers and said what do you think about what's going on how do you like working here um what do you think about the decision to close the plant would you like to do something about it and we had all sorts of conversations with workers and what we would do every few days is we would go and type those conversations. Well, we'd reflect on the things that the workers were saying to us, and we would write a bulletin. Uh, we would write a, a double sided A4 leaflet um, by way of response. So we, we would use these leaflets to carry on a dialogue with the people in the factory. So people would say, Oh, there's nothing we could do. So the next bulletin, we put a little article in it that said, Well, there's actually loads of stuff you could do. Uh, people would say, "Oh, I hate working here. Anyway, it's shit." And we would say, "Well, probably is. But if you um, if you uh, win, if you uh, beat uh, management, if you force them to keep the place open, if you uh, have a successful struggle against this closure, then you'll be able to." change the rules you'll be able to uh, dictate terms and and make future life in the factory different and so through these leaflets that we were handing out at the factory we had a dialogue with the workers there uh, which culminated in um, a mass meeting so uh, about a hundred workers and their families turned up to a meeting that we called uh in a local um a local hall um, we were camping on the island all this time um and uh what uh happened at that meeting was well, the cops turned up uh the the island police showed up to make sure that there was no trouble um the company sent a company spy who hung out at the back of the meeting i thought that was a nice touch and Um, we got a very special guest speaker in so the closure of the Vestas plant was taking place in the context of the credit crunch so before the uh, great financial crash in 2008 became kind of transformed into a crisis of public finances it was first a credit crunch for private businesses lots of private firms were laying people off all over the UK and one of the most important workers' responses to those big layoffs had come in the form of a factory occupation at a car dashboard manufacturing business called Vistian. And they had two plants, one in Northern Ireland and one in Enfield in North London. And they um, uh, occupied the plant. They seized the plant when they were told that they were being sent home and not only were they all being dismissed, but as a cherry on top, the employer told them that they, they'd actually had to spend all of their pension money and severance pay. Um, so, you know, sorry, go home. So, uh, the workers at Vistian and Enfield took over the factory and they held those buildings until they got their, um, until they got their, uh, severance pay and pensions back. That was a a long and very difficult fight, but you know they they stuck it out, very good. Um, And for this mass meeting on the Isle of Wight, in our leaflets we'd been talking about what the Vistian workers had been doing, and for this meeting on the Isle of Wight we got in touch with and we brought over uh, a um, uh, uh, the convener, the union convener of the visti and enfield unite plant uh, that was a guy called ron clark and he was the leader of one of the leaders of the occupation uh down in uh down in enfield uh so he came and he addressed the workers and he said what they had done and that was very inspiring i gave a speech as well it wasn't as inspiring um and um at the end of the meeting a small group of workers formed a little committee, and they started beefering away inside the factory. There was no union in the plant like many private sector manufacturers. It was strongly anti-union, um, so they carried on their organizing work in secret. Uh, comrades from Workers' Liberty helped this committee do things like uh, we ran a workshop about how to map a workplace, So we did mapping exercises, and they went and made maps of who works where, on what shift, on what machine, on what day, what time of day, and um They organized the workplace in a matter of weeks um, and the time came to launch the occupation and uh, the day before they were planning to spring the occupation, having spoken to everyone, all the 200 workers who would be on that shift at that time, um, the day before they sprang this occupation, the managers got wind of it. Uh, Two um, backwards workers informed on the organisers in the plant and the management um, started a lockout. Uh, It was quite dramatic actually. One of the workers, Sean, uh, who had been organising it, he went home after getting bollocked by the manager uh, after the lockout began and um, he tried to set back off from his house to take part in some last-minute urgent organising business to get the show on the road, only to find that the works manager, Paddy Weir, had parked his vehicle across Sean's drive, preventing him from getting his car out, Uh, with the result that Sean didn't wind up inside the occupation. He was running the press operation from outside. Anyway, that night, prematurely, the occupation was sprung. And the kind of the central core organising team of about 30 people um, just headed in, uh, headed into the plant uh, with a couple of activists accompanying them, outside activists. And long story, you know, there's a lot that could be said about that struggle about all the thrills and spills, all the environmental activists who came down to assist us in the days leading up to the occupation, and the many, many activists who came down to take part in the protest camp that grew up around the occupied factory. Uh, We could talk a lot about the way that the working class community on the Isle of Wight, people from all sorts of different backgrounds on the island came to daily rallies outside the factory, the way the island saw the largest demonstration, I believe, in its entire history um, in support of the guys who were occupying this factory you know a lot of stuff happened and the occupation made the front page of uh, i think most of the big newspapers it became we received a wonderful thing we received um a photograph of solidarity from uh, school children in latin america I, I think in peru although i may be uh, mistaken um um, you know it was uh for the three weeks that the occupation of that plant persisted, it was a major political fact on the island and in society. It's worth thinking about why we lost at this point um and it's worth I think also saying something about how we could have won um, so the class struggle is carried on on three fronts is carried on um on the industrial front the political front and the ideological front and the reason that in the end it was possible for the company to get bailiffs to come and physically evict the occupiers after a court battle um and why the government uh, didn't step in and nationalize the plant Uh, Is because we lost on all those three fronts. So um, we lost industrially in the sense that, well, first of all, um, they got the jump on us, you know, uh, the workers were informed upon before they were able to spring uh, the bigger, fuller occupation that had been planned. Um, But also we lost industrially because. Uh, there was no trade union organization in the plant prior that was adequate to this job. Uh, we lost because it was impossible to organize sympathy action elsewhere. So the workers in the factory got lots and lots of support from different trade unionists on the island, but there were no um, stoppages of other parts of the economy. And Crucially, there was no strike action on the docks. We appealed to all the blades from the island were shipped out for sale by boat and we appealed to workers on the boat, workers on the docks and indeed workers at the docks in Texas where we believed the blades were going to be sold on Um, and unfortunately we weren't able to get workers in that time of very extreme financial crisis where lots of people were losing their jobs every day it was difficult to get people to agree to take secondary action um, or to um, to increase the disruption and increase the economic pressure on the company and the political pressure on the government by using that weapon of strike action that that, that was very difficult to do and we didn't manage it um, the second reason that we lost was political and it's worth saying something uh it was worth dwelling on this a little bit so where we are at the minute is um ed Miliband has just been returned to his post as um the um minister, the shadow minister for energy now at this time in 2009 there was a Labour government, Ed Miliband was the Minister for Energy and shortly before the closure of the Vestas plant had been announced, um, Ed Miliband had been boasting about how there was going to be a green industrial revolution in the UK. Uh, they were going to make loads of green jobs, um, you know it was going to be a, a climate budget and uh, absolutely tons of wind turbines were going to get set up. But they were going to rely on private companies to do this and the role and when one of those private companies didn't play ball and said actually do you know what we could make more money by shutting down wind turbine production in the uk and chasing subsidies and and setting up um another plant in colorado instead ed Miliband's uh response was to ring the local Labour Party activists, uh, the, the uh, local Labour Party leaders on the Isle of Wight, and say, are you mad? No, of course, we're not going to nationalize this plant. We don't nationalize things. Now in that same week, the government had just renationalized yet another failing rail company. But Ed Miliband is doing the rounds, ringing people, having phone conferences with, Uh, left-wing activists on the Isle of Wight with Labour Party members on the Isle of Wight saying, steady on chaps, we're definitely not going to nationalise this place. Now, um, the RMT both on the island and nationally in the person of Bob Crow were very helpful in this dispute. Um, And at one point, Bob Crow was able to bounce the government into holding talks about saving the plant and keeping wind turbine production going in the UK Um, but you know Ed Miliband was and the new Labour government were intransigent we don't nationalize things now this is a government of what is in UK politics supposed to be the party of the workers and it's a problem that the an overwhelmingly popular measure amongst all the workers on the Isle of Wight, the nationalisation of the Vestas plant in order to save wind turbine production was absolutely comprehensively vetoed because the Labour Party uh, absolutely refused to make any inroads into the rights of private property. Um, That was a big problem. And it sort of tells you something about, you know, our movement needs to fight on the political front It needs to fight on the political level. It needs to win political representation for the working class. And the problem that we've got with the Labour Party is we've sort of got political representation for the working class, but we've also, in a very real way, not. Um, And our task is to make that political representation as real as possible and to fight for a government which is authentically a workers' government, um, you know, in, in a way that the new Labour government that hung out these workers and the environment to dry was not. And I think it should be a matter of great concern for the whole environmental movement that this guy, the author of this debacle, Ed Miliband, is back uh, as uh, Shadow Energy and Environment Secretary. And then, related to that, you know, Engels says class struggle goes on on the industrial level, the political level, and also on the ideological level and on the ideological level, I think that 's kind of interesting to think about as well um, it, The idea that you solve problems by nationalizing things is is actually quite taboo in British politics. It was then, and even more recently when Friends of Workers' Liberty have been pushing." for a more radical set of politics to come through the the Green New Deal policy debate that's been going on in the Labour Party. There's been a lot of pushback against the idea of public ownership as a a key uh, way of solving climate change. The idea that in order to resolve climate change, you need massive public ownership of industry, um, in order to subordinate industry to democratic control and sort things out, people push back against that, and sometimes, oddly, it's ostensibly quite left-wing people who push back against that with real venom, uh, because they think that you're going too far, and that's, you know, that that is an ideological battle at work inside the workers' movement, most importantly of all, and it's, you know, we've got to change the ideas in people's heads. Um, in order to get to where we need to go, so industrially, politically, and ideologically, we lost. And you know, it's not just us, but the whole movement lost in two thousand and nine. Uh, at the same time that this struggle was going on, there was the uh, COP uh, conference going on in Denmark, and uh, at that conference, the you know. Um, there was an enormous amount of hype around this meeting of uh, capitalist governments from all over the world talking about, you know, they're going to make an agreement to sort out climate change. Um, and the uh, outcome of it was it was a debacle. It didn't come off. Um, there was nothing like the limited but very significant agreement that came out of Paris a couple of years ago. Um, it was generally regarded as a farce and a failure. And after that, a combination of that and the movement of the focus of struggle onto um, class struggles around distribution of wealth in the time of the economic crash uh, after 2008, all of that stuff kind of drowned out that movement, that whole cycle of struggles ended. And I want to, end by talking briefly about the cycle of struggles that began i guess about maybe two years ago um you know we saw uh, in maybe 2017 2018 uh, a coming back to life of the environmental movement and actually i think the basis of the environmental movement that we've got now is better in a lot of different ways than what was going on in 2009 and in a way I include the Vesta struggle in that you know it was a really important moment in um, kind of creating a unity between the workers movement and the environmental movement it was symbolically very important it could have won Um, you know, our defeat wasn't written in advance, um, and if we'd won, it would have been even more significant. But, um, you know, in a way, although it had the virtue of trying, being a real attempt to transform environmental activism into a mass (coughs) working class thing that lots and lots of workers can get involved in, take control over and use their power in. The Vesta struggle was a little bit like one of those climate camps. You know, it was localized in one place. It was down to the great heroism of a small number of workers, relatively speaking, you know, the heroism of the couple of hundred people who were involved in the struggle in that plant. Um, And... um, what we've got going on now, I think, is in many ways, uh, bigger and more hopeful than that. So I think that if you look at the climate strike movement, um, that is, to my mind, so, all right, I'll say briefly about Extinction Rebellion. I think that to a great extent, Extinction Rebellion is following most directly in the tradition of the climate camp in that it's about spectacular direct action small-ish number you know larger numbers than 10 years ago but still small numbers of people um getting themselves nicked and for that reason it's kind of a bit of a middle class um concern it's not um it's not uh, the mass and accessible movement that <clears throat> um that we need not to denigrate it you know i think that why extinction rebellion is doing is fantastic and there's you know some truly heroic stuff going on at their end but it suffers from some of the same limiting factors that the climate camp movement did now if you look at the climate strike movement there is something the logic of it is much more accessible and it points much more in the direction of something that can create a mass working-class movement around climate change. It's about um, people doing something collectively um, on a big mass scale. It's about finding ways of doing environmental activism that intersects with what's going on in your workplace. It's about people getting together with their fellow workers and saying you know what we can make a difference here in our workplace There's things that we can do here, and it begins with collectively us taking part in this protest. Um, And the logic of a strike movement like that is that you move from protest to being able to do a lot more than just protesting about things. It bears in it, to a much greater extent than the climate camps ever did, and to my mind than Extinction Rebellion does, this model, the climate strike way of doing things, bears within it the potential for doing the most that can disrupt that relationship of domination, of undemocracy, of powerlessness, of alienation. Um, And it's the thing that can most develop that power that workers have to disrupt and reorganize the economy. Um, And I think that the resurgence of climate activism in these forms is really really hopeful and um, I've um, talked a lot about a lot of different things a little bit formless sorry uh, but I'll leave it there and uh, hopefully we can have some discussion